question is going to be asked this morning, who is this guy? And we're talking about Jesus Christ. Who is, who is he? Who is he really? What is he? And it's really a great question because the way a person handles the answer to that question can be the difference between an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven and glory with him. That is something we need to get straight. If the Jesus, if the Jesus we serve is not the Jesus of the Bible, meaning described by the Bible, and we take it that way, then we have no hope of eternal life. You can't mess with Jesus, who he is, his humanity or his deity, and still have a Jesus that can save you. You can't do that. It's not Jesus then. It has to be the Jesus that God sent us. And you and I can, can make up our own Jesus. Many people do. And they make up things about Jesus like he's all love and he's no dis discipline or whatever they want to say. They make up their own Jesus to their own liking, and that's uh, interesting in our world to hear that and to see how popular it is. And uh, you can say that that Jesus is your Savior, but he will not be if it is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus has to be what the Bible says that he is, or he is of no value to salvation. You can't take away from the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus and still have the Jesus that provided salvation. If someone's Jesus is not fully God or fully man, he is not the Jesus of the Bible, and therefore he is powerless to save. If he is the Jesus of the Bible, he's the only one that can save, and that's the God that we want to serve today. Um, years ago, at the end of the Second World War, uh, the uh, Allies had a thing they called the Ghost Army. And the Ghost Army, its duty, and there was 1,100 men that armed the Ghost Army, and their sole duty was to deceive Hitler's army on the, on the battlefields by misleading them as to the size and the location of the Allied forces, and that happened from May of 1944 through the end of the war in 1945. Uh, this ghost army had inflatable tanks. They had troop carriers, also inflatable. They had authentic sounds played from uh, a recording of troops and machines running in the background. And they looked like they were an army. They looked and acted like an army with their uh, blow-up tanks and things like that. And they even sounded like an army. But they were totally fake. The, the, uh, if the Allies would have shot one of their blow-up balloon uh, tanks, it would have just disintegrated. And all this was declassified way back in 1966, so about 57 years ago. Its members have since then been recognized for the role they played in the victory of the Allied nations against Germany. And they were all awarded a congressional, those who were alive, were awarded a congressional gold medal in 2022 for their service in the Ghost Army. The Ghost Army was really good at deceiving, but it could not actually repel the onslaught of an enemy. A fake Jesus cannot save you from hell, rescue you from unrighteousness, or care genuinely for your soul. You need the Jesus of the Bible if you want that to happen. And today we get a good glimpse at what Jesus actually was and who he was. We're reading in Matthew chapter 17, and I'm reading in uh, verses uh, 1 through 13 from my New American Standard. If yours is a little different, uh, that'll be fine. We'll get through it. Here's what it says. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. We call those the big three. 
uh, and, and uh, John, his brother, and they led him up on a, he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garment became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles or three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face down to the ground, and they were terrified. Um, that means they were extremely terrified. It's an intensive word. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said to them, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, he saw no one else but Jesus himself alone. I'm going to stop there for a minute, and we'll pick up uh, after uh, verse 8 as we get to that point in the text. Uh, you'll have this stuff in your bulletin if you're following along, and you can fill it out as we go. Uh, number one, in verses 1 to 8, what I think we're being taught there and what I want us to learn is that Jesus will prove himself deity, in other words, that he is God, divine, as much as he is human. Up to this point, the apostles have seen a human person who can do a lot of miracles, and it's just crazy how much stuff he could do, but they always looked at human flesh. Today, three of them are going to get to see Jesus uh, in the other side of who he is, the deity of God, and it's going to be a spectacular situation. So six days later, according to the text, Jesus invites the three head disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go with him on a little hike up the side of the mountain up to the top. Now, I want to tie this in because we added it in last week at the end of the last sermon, but uh, it's going to have some bearing here. So go back to verse 28 of chapter uh, 16. Jesus made this promise, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that's caused a lot of problems for people trying to understand, well, wait a minute. Um, the people that he's talking to, the, to, they're all dead. How did they ever see the kingdom? The kingdom isn't here. The kingdom didn't come. It's not full-blown anyway. So what is that talking about? Our passage in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, answers that question. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, here it is, and that's why both Mark and Matthew bring it up right after he says that there were some here that are not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The issue is this, Jesus, when he came, brought the kingdom and offered the kingdom of God. But it was rejected, and being rejected, some things happened. Like, number one, Elijah, who was to come, was rejected because uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. They rejected him and killed him, and Jesus said, since they've rejected the kingdom, they've also rejected me. But the offer of the kingdom and the presence of Jesus is the kingdom of God. It is not full-blown yet. We're still looking forward to that because we believe God will keep his promise and in the millennial kingdom he will come back and he will reign on this earth. So he says six days later, six days later from what? Well, from what happened in verse 28 where Jesus made that statement. Some of you standing here will see the Son of Man in his glory uh, in the coming of the kingdom. And so this is what Matthew says happened to fulfill that particular prophecy. So six days later, uh, this is what's taking place. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, uh, Luke says it was eight days later 
Uh, the Bible does not contradict itself. It's just that Luke counted the beginning of the week at a different day than Matthew did. It still refers to a reckoning of one week, even though there's a difference in the first day. Both of these expressions refer to one week, so there is no uh, conflict there. There's a difference of opinion also, uh, which mountain did Jesus take them up on for the transfiguration? The problem is nowhere in the Bible does it say what mountain it was. And so what we have to do is go by the geography of where he was, like in chapter 15 and 16. It doesn't say that he moved anywhere, but we don't know that. So different Bible scholars have said three different mountains, basically. One is Mount Meron, and uh, that's also spelled with an M sometimes, Meron. And uh, that's fully inside the land of Israel. Uh, it's only 4,000 feet in elevation. It says Jesus went up with them on a high mountain. Uh, I grew up in Colorado. 4,000 feet is not a high mountain, all right? Uh, some say it was Mount Hermon. That's a very rugged mountain, and it's 9,200 feet in elevation. And others like Mount Tabor. It doesn't say which one it was. Having been to Israel and stood at the foot of Mount Tabor and seen some of the uh, relics that were left there carved into the rock at the bottom of the mountain having to do with what appears to be the transfiguration, uh, I went along with my professor that was leading the trip there, and I believe it was Mount Hermon. You know what? It doesn't matter what mountain. If it did, he would have told us. I'm sure that if we knew which mountain it was, people would go up there and build a shrine, and they'd all try to stand there and, and uh, try to relive the moment, but we, we don't know. I'm going with Mount Hermon for various reasons, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, what matters is what happened on the mountain, and that's what we are focusing on. So the point is not which mountain, but what happened there. Jesus picks three of his disciples. That means uh, ten of, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, nine of them did not get to go up with Jesus. And that is uh, that he uh, chose Peter, James, and John, but no others. Uh, there, Jesus was transfigured. That is, his form changed so that they could see something that was always there with Jesus, but was not shown to human beings. There was a visible change in his actual appearance. First of all, the text says that his face shone like the sun. One of the videos I looked at this week had, had somebody that they put a bright sun, shiny face on. You couldn't even tell it was a person. Uh, it's just that nobody did a good job on the whole thing, so we watched what we did this morning. And I feel bilingual, and I wish I could speak in Spanish, so we could do a little of that, but we don't. We don't. So anyway, first of all, his face is shining. Can you imagine the intensity of somebody's face shining like the sun? Haven't heard about that since Moses came down off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and the people couldn't look at him, and he had to veil his face because of the glory of God uh, being present with him. Not that he was not God, but the glory of God present with him. Second, it says that his clothing, his garments, became as white as light. Now, that's hard to do on a video, and they had white garments there, but it says as light. They had to be shining as well. What they saw that day, what Peter, James, and John saw, was a fulfillment of verse 28, that some of you here would see the Son of Man's glory in the coming of his kingdom. The kingdom is there. The man of God is there, and he's showing his glory. So what they saw was a glimpse of his holy deity unveiled. This is the other side of Jesus that is usually veiled to human beings. Now, uh, let's see uh, where Jesus has this veil of flesh covering his deity. If you want to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 
Hebrews chapter 10, and this is all in your bulletin, verses 19 to 20. So the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, now he's talking about the temple and the holy of holies, by a new and living way which he inaugurated uh, for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Remember that in the temple there was a veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Only the priest, the high priest, once a year could go into the holy of holies. Everybody else had to stay out. Only the priest could be in the holy place. And that veil was torn in two when Jesus Christ gave up his life and uh, died on our behalf, and it was ripped from top to bottom. So the author of Hebrews is saying, we are entering to the holy place of God by the blood of Jesus, the living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about not sacrificial cleansing from animals, which verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It had to be the blood of Jesus Christ giving up his life. And through that veil of his flesh, he, he, his humanity and his deity provided salvation for us. So my friends, this is the real Jesus, fully God and fully man. This is the Jesus that we must have if we want salvation. And then in verses 3 and 4, we learn that Moses and Elijah appeared talking with Jesus about what he was to accomplish here on earth, uh, and it's going to happen in a short time. Now let's look at Luke chapter 9, because he gives us some extra information about what the uh, uh, guys that were sent back to talk to the Lord on the mount uh, were saying to him. Luke chapter 9. So it's the same instance, the same thing. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. How do we know who appeared to him? The text tells us who appeared to him, Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory. All right, Moses and Elijah were dead at this time, right? They've been dead for a long time. Uh, but here they are, alive, and they're standing on the mountain, and this kind of made them look like ghosts. Uh, certainly, dead people in heaven aren't ghosts. They have real bodies. It's a glorified body. But they appeared in glory, and they were speaking of his departure. Well, what do you think that is? It's his death on the cross and his ascension, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that's all we're told about it, and that's all we need to know about it. Uh, his departure is what they were talking about. They're talking about the cross and everything Jesus was going to have to go through. They knew the plan of God. Jesus has been revealing the plan of God to them, uh, the apostles, and they're having trouble figuring it out. These guys knew what it meant. Jesus came to pray, and while he was praying, in other words, that's the reason he took them up on the mountain was to pray. While he was praying, his clothing began turning white, and his face became different. It shone like the sun. I'm sure you couldn't even hardly look at him. If you did, you might go blind at that time. Peter, having seen some of these things, wanted to commemorate the event by building temporary structures for the men. Uh, they're called booths in the Bible. They're really a tent. They're a temporary structure. Some think that this was because of the connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, where they commemorated God saving them through the wilderness. It also may be an allusion to the arrival of, of the prophetic eschaton, eschaton meaning the last days. Moses probably represented the fact that the prophet, that Jesus was a prophet like him to come, and we find that in Deuteronomy 18.15. So why would Moses show up? 
at this time, and it's probably because of this promise. And so I'm going to turn to that, Deuteronomy 18.15. We're back in Moses' day. He made this statement. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now we know that God in heaven is going to say in just a few minutes, when, when the uh, guys are gone, he's going to say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So I think Moses shows up, so the apostles know, these three, the three, Peter, James, and John, they know this is God's son. And by the way, this is the one that God prophesied about through me, Moses says, through me to be the prophet. And this is him, and he is the prophet. So he stood as a witness to the fact of who Jesus is. Now, what about Elijah? Elijah is seen as a prophet of the eschaton's arrival, the uh, last day's arrival, the end of days. So we don't have too far to go. If we go back to the last book in the Old Testament, to Malachi, and we want to go to chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament, and read a promise. So Malachi prophesied by the Spirit of God these words, Starting in verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great terrible day of Yahweh. He's talking about the great tribulation. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, we already know because we've studied through it, right? Uh, Elijah had already come in Jesus' day, and they rejected him. And they killed him. And so Jesus said, if you care to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come. In other words, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he wasn't physically Elijah. So what that means is that they rejected the first Elijah, John the Baptist. And so we will uh, have another uh, Elijah come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this will be the real Elijah from the Old Testament. And so he's bearing witness to what God said about that. So the prophetic word was made more sure to the disciples by the event of the transfiguration. In other words, he brought his three best men up onto the mountain with him and demonstrated, I am more than what you think I am. I am the son of God. And you get to see a glimpse of that glory right now. And then we see Moses and Elijah joining with that. Well, uh, how do we know that that was significant? Well, because one of the guys that was on the mountain wrote about it. And that's in Second Peter, verses 1, 16 to 18. So Peter, who was there, writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, look, of what? His majesty. We saw him in the form that he is as God. We saw uh, his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from the heavens uh, when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's Peter, James, and John. And this utterance was made and it proves that Jesus is who he is and that we didn't make this up. We have seen the glory of God in Jesus. Well, moving on to verse 5, in light of the eschatological nature, the last times events of the vision, 
The call from God comes through the cloud, and we will understand that cloud to be a representation, a theophany of God, the Shekinah glory that he used in the Old Testament, the visible manifestation of God. The religious leaders are in direct opposition to the command from God, which is, this is my son, listen to him. They said, we don't believe he's your son, we are not listening to him. Uh, And uh, these uh, religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin members, the member of the council, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, these religious leaders are in direct opposition to the command of God, both here and at the baptism of Christ, when uh, God said that again, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And they said, no, we're not going to. He is not the son of God. He can't be the son of God. He's a blasphemer, and he needs to be put to death. So we must stop and ask ourselves, where, where are we at in terms of this command? Now it begins by understanding that God said, this is my beloved son. The beloved son came to give us salvation through the cross. And the issue is, have I accepted that sacrifice for my salvation? Do I know where I'm going to go when I die? What would I tell somebody if they said, how do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? Would I talk about my good works? Would I talk about because I live a pretty good life? Instead, the Bible says we're not saved by works. Our works are like filthy rags. It's not works that we get there by. It's by faith in what Jesus did for us on that cross. In his death, he paid for our sins. In his death, he can make us well and heal us from our sins. So that's the first thing. And the next thing God expects from those who say they belong to Jesus Christ is that they love to hear what he says and do what it says. Because in the Bible... Uh, To hear means to do, to act on what you have heard. It's not good enough to say, oh yeah, I heard about Jesus, and yeah, he's probably a pretty good guy. I need to act on my faith in him. I need to put faith in him, and I need to live for him. So biblically, the word listen has the idea of hearing and doing what a person hears. Here it refers to Jesus with all of his commandments, his desires for us, and instructions about life. It also starts with salvation, but it moves into these areas. So the question is, am I listening? Now, I asked Lisa to put this in your bulletin, and you'll find it under uh, point, point one. And you'll, it'll say there, so am I listening? And I gave you a place to do some self-application. There's a box for yes, and there's a box for no. And so I'd like to invite you to just answer the question. Do you believe that you are listening to Jesus? Are you doing what he said you're supposed to do? Do you know him as your Savior, first of all, and then are you doing what he said? And that'll be between you and God, yes or no? If it's no, something needs to happen about that. We need to change that. Either come into a relationship with Jesus Christ or start living as a person who knows him, but I haven't lived that way. So my point is going to be also, if the Father loves uh, loves Jesus, well, shouldn't I love him well as well? Yeah, I should. If the Father loves Jesus, he's beloved son of God, I should treat him that way. Well, then verses 6 through 7, hearing the voice of God, the three were terrified, and they went down on their face to the ground. In other words, they were so terrified, their uh, body shuts down, and they just faint dead away. Jesus had to come and touch them and encourage them and strengthen them so they could even get up off the ground. You remember that happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 and verses uh, about 7 through 10? The angel appeared to Daniel, and he was so overcome with fear The other guys that were with him, they were overcoming through, and they took off running as fast as they could go. Daniel just fainted dead away. And the angel 
had to reach down and, and strengthen him and say, you know, Daniel, man of high esteem, stand up. I have a message for you. You can't hear it down there. You're, you're fainting. That's just what the glimpse of an angel did. Can you imagine what the glimpse of the deity of the Son of God did to the three apostles? It knocked them to the ground. They were all, you know, we say dead away. They weren't dead, but they were out. And Jesus has to encourage them and touch them. Get up. It's okay. It's just me. But now they know a whole lot more about who this guy is. Moses and Elijah were gone, and Jesus was now by himself with his apostles. This is a biblical evidence, my friends, that there is life after death. Moses and Elijah, and they're appearing, prove that. And they have bodies. Uh, again, the, the video showed them like they were ghost-like. That is not true, but it was still the best thing I could find. They would have, they would have bodies that uh, you would be able to see, feel, and touch. But anyway, there is life after death. You better prepare for it if you're not. Now let's go back and read verses 9 through of the rest of that passage, down to verse 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And uh, let me just point this out. In Isaiah 53, 9, Jesus said uh, that he would die uh, deaths, period, deaths. And here, although the Greek text, I'm, I'm sorry, the English text does not reflect the Greek text, uh, this will bless your heart. This is a genitive plural masculine for the word dead. That's a blessing, isn't it? What I want you to hear is, here's what it really says. Uh, literally, it says this. The son of, when the Son of Man has risen from his deaths. His deaths. What deaths? The one he died for you. And the one he died for me. And the one he died for everyone else. Multiple deaths he died. He took care of them all. Because it's awkward English, I think the translators didn't put it that way in my New American here. And uh, uh, I don't have my new 2020 version here. I'll have to check it. But Son of Man has risen from, from the deaths. And his disciples asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came, and he did, and you did not, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So, because of that, because they rejected the Elijah to come, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. They rejected the kingdom. The kingdom's not going to come full blown. So the, the prince of the kingdom will die, and he'll die for the sins of the people. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist, and they were right. So, um, getting back to uh, my notes here, how does death and resurrection occur if Elijah has already made an appearance? Suffering was not a part of their eschatological playbook for the disciples. We saw that uh, last time. And since Elijah appeared, surely the coming of the day of the Lord was there, and Elijah would do his ministry. They think, oh, here's the kingdom right now. The answer is no, it's not because of the rejection. No one thought the Messiah would be rejected and with him his kingdom, but that's exactly what has happened. Verses 10 and 11. Still not understanding, Jesus leaves the door open for the coming of Elijah the prophet. Why, uh, they asked, do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The prophets never lie. It's still true. Um, it is because he is to come first, uh, we read, and that he's still going to come. 
So whatever was supposed to happen hasn't happened, and it hasn't happened since this day, and we're still waiting for it to happen, and we believe it will. Elijah will come, and he will restore the things uh, that he is to restore. Restore means to change to an earlier good state or condition, to bring them back. To Back to what? Back to a relationship with the Messiah, with, with God in the flesh. John the Baptist did this work as well as every other prophet of God. They all had this goal and were ignored for the most part, and many of them were killed, at least tortured, and people wouldn't believe them. So what I want you to notice is that we have in verse 11 the words, he is coming, that's yet future, right? And in verse 12, he's already come. Because of the rejection of Israel, of John's message, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and they rejected him, the religious leaders killed him, actually the king did. Like this, the Son of Man must also suffer because of the rejection at their hands. He means to the point of death. They did not accept the Lamb of God, so now they will one day face the Lion of Judah, and Elijah himself will be a part of what leads up to that punishment perhaps as one of the two witnesses, although that's not spelled out for us. But we're going to think about that. Then in verse 13, the disciples understood. He's talking about John the Baptist in terms of Elijah already coming, and they were right. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, thanks to Luke. He tells us that. And he was rejected to the point of death. There was an Elijah who had come before the kingdom, and the king was rejected. There will be another Elijah, the real Elijah, the the physical Elijah who will come when Jesus comes to judge the world. He will exhibit the power of the mighty man of God that he is. I'm talking about uh, Elijah. I want to read about what I think could happen in the eschaton in Revelation chapter 11. I am pretty convinced that Elijah is one of the witnesses that will come. I'm not convinced about who the other one is. Dr. Ron Rhodes thinks that it's uh, Moses. I'm not so sure about that, but could be wrong. doesn't say But I think this is going to be inclusive of Elijah because he's got to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And here's what it says in Revelation 11. So the angel speaking to John, giving him the revelation, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside of the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So this is what the Gentiles do to the uh, temple in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. He says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So here we are. uh, One of them probably is Elijah. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If you're in my Zechariah study on Sunday morning in the Sunday school class, you know what that is. And if anyone wants to harm them, talking about the two witnesses, fire flows out of their mouths. In other words, by way of command comes destruction and judgment and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So they have the power to take somebody's life if they want to harm them. These have the power to shut up the sky, so drought. So the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony as to the truth of God, that is, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill him. And we've chosen to call the beast the Antichrist. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord also was crucified. It's Jerusalem. Those from whom the prophets and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies and, uh, for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. And that's to shame them. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because the two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the earth are dead. They're not going to stay dead. If you read on, they're going to hear a voice from heaven, and he's going to say, come up here. And so the two witnesses stand up, and God catches them into heaven. And they are again witnesses to the truth of the word of God. There's a lot of things, this is more learning than preachy this morning, but there's things in here we need to know if we're going to understand our view of premillennialism, if we're going to understand our view that God uh, talks to us in plain language and we believe it literally to be fulfilled, I fully expect that two witnesses are going to come. I, I think one of them is Elijah, and they will stand in Jerusalem, and no one can touch them until God gives them over to the power of the Antichrist, and he kills them trying to show that he's greater than God. And then all of a sudden, they get up, and God calls them to heaven. And that's when all the, all, the, all the plagues and things start breaking loose on the earth. All right. If we're right, we don't have to be here for that. That's the good news, people. Are you with me? All right. I think, I think we're right. Okay. By way of application in your uh, bulletin there, number one, it's so important it can cost us our eternal life if we refuse to listen to Jesus and do his will. It's so important. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And it's Jesus. And it's got to be this Jesus. People make up Jesus, but it's got to be this one. Secondly, as sure as he came the first time, he will come the second as promised he would. Listen to him. Listen to him. God has warned us of impending danger. And he's offered us impending grace and forgiveness and glory. And it's free of cost. You just put your faith in him. And finally, number three, who is this guy? It's a question we asked right off. He is the eternal sovereign God of the universe who alone can save you and I from our sins. Would you listen to him today? There are people uh, in religions around us who believe that Jesus is not truly deity. There are other people that believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. That's not biblical. There's only one biblical Jesus, and it's this one. Let's pray together. We want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of your word. We want to thank you that you uh, uphold that truth by the two witnesses that spoke on that Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were there. Uh, these apostles that would work hard at carrying on uh, the word of God to uh, th that generation and to our generation by writing down the words of, of God is true. And we're so thankful that they did. Father, if there's anyone here that has not trusted Christ as Savior, they think they're going to get into heaven by being good and doing good or whatever else it might be. May they see that our righteousness is like filthy rags, that we need to come to Jesus humbly, 
with nothing to offer and just ask that he would forgive our sins and believe in him that he paid for those sins on the cross. And then we want to listen to what he says and do what he says in our life so we can be valuable for the kingdom that is yet to come. And we thank you for your promise. We ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.